This is what it's like to predict private keys that secure cryptocurrency wallets. You just, you just can't predict them. Or can you? What's shaking? Welcome back to the All In Podcast. I'm Rick Jordan, and I'm here with my special guest today, Ted Harrington. Dude, it's good to connect with you, finally, after months. I know, I know. I'm so glad to be here, and uh, always excited to just hang out with you for a little bit, so this will be great. Right on. There's, there's reasons why it's taken us so long to connect on this, and it's because we're both pretty busy. We're both in the same space, too, cybersecurity, and we're both pretty much badasses when it comes to what we do. <laughs> You said it. You said it. I agree with it. (laughs) Yep. Right on. (laughs) You know, there's a lot of people that'll say, you know, why would you talk about yourself that way? And I have no issues talking about myself that way. Even when I was in the White House a few weeks ago, consulting the Department of Defense on this, it's like, hey, I'm just a guy. That's how I started out. I'm just a guy. But then I went into that does all these things. And that's why I'm in the room. Yeah. And it's dude, it's not arrogance because when you go into, you know, this, you're releasing a book called Hackable, right? That's the name of it. That's right. Yeah. Did you Comes write out today? It, it got right today, man. I love it. <laughs> today is the day. <laughs> Sweet. Well, we couldn't have timed this any better. Could we have? Yeah, dude, that's fantastic. So when you wrote your book, did you think you were going to put out a sucky book? <laughs> I, I did not expect to do that. No, but that <laughs> exactly. is actually a fear, right? When you part of writing is fear. And one of my actual fears was, well, what if I write a bad book? But then as soon as you acknowledge fear, you realize, okay, well, what do I have to do to address that fear? And it's pretty straightforward once you address it or once you acknowledge it, which is, well, don't write a bad book. And so then you, you know backwards from there what you have to go do in order to write a good book. Right on. You think any musician puts out an album or something like that and they go into it thinking or even coming out of it and thinking, you know what, that wasn't that good. You know, why would they think that? Why would right. you put something out that you're not pleased with? So I'm sure you're pretty happy with it, man. I'm pumped to read it, too. What do you see as like the general landscape of cybersecurity, you know, going into 2021? Because we're just coming out of a pandemic. And dude, notice how I just say coming out of because I'm pretty optimistic at this point. It just is what it is. You know, I don't care about waves or anything else. You know, I just feel that the American people are kind of done with it. But there's a lot of suffering that's happened, not just with the sickness and the death. There's been a lot of suffering, I know, because we're in the same industry this year with, with cyber and hacks. You know, where have you seen the landscape shifted, especially this year and then going into next year? What do you see in the future? Well, I'm, I'm pretty optimistic too, like you. And the silver lining that I like to see out of what's been happening this year with the pandemic is that it's really driven everybody to accept and adopt remote working, which of course requires a reliance on technology. And that has caused people to be asking these questions that have maybe not been asked appropriately before about what are we doing to secure these solutions, whether it's uh, networks or software or whatever. And I think that has tremendous long-term positive impact. And even though it might take a long time for that to sort of materialize, that those conversations are happening is the part that matters. For sure, man. What's the biggest misconception that people have, in your opinion, about hackers? about hackers. Well, (laughs) 
where do I begin? Uh, that's a long, long list. There's a lot uh, of things, so, right? Because you see, and I, I want your answer, but dude, just to preface this, because you always see like on the media, right? You see the guy sitting there, you know, the imagery with like the hood and, the hoodie, you know, the yeah. dark face. You can't really see who it is, you know? So everyone thinks like it's this materi- mysterious figure like QAnon or something like that, right? That's mm-hmm. just lurking about. So, But w- what is the biggest misconception about hackers to you? Well, maybe a place to start is even with that word itself, right? And I think you hit the nail on the head in that the really the media has taken this term and portrayed it to mean a bad person associated with evil doing. And that's partly true. But really what a hacker is, is someone who looks at the way things are supposed to work and makes them behave differently, right? They're, they're problem solvers. And... I, I'm I'm a hacker. All our all our people who work at our organization, they're all hackers. But the difference is that ethical hackers, people like me, what we do is we try to break, we try to find how a system will break in order to fix it and improve it, and make it better. Whereas attackers, which is who the media is referring to when they say hackers, they're trying to exploit these systems. And both are hackers. But the difference is really boils down to sort of morality and the motivation. For sure. And the word hacker in itself, as you know, because you just listen to that. And in order to say that, hey, I'm one of the good guys, you have to actually put an adjective in front of that word, ethical hacker. Yeah, so general conceptions, regardless, is that hacker is a bad word. You know, I think back to everybody loves Johnny Depp, Pirates of the Caribbean, right? He was a pirate, but was he a bad pirate? You know, when you hear the word pirate, it's like, oh, that's just somebody who's a bad person to begin with. You know, they steal, they rape, they pillage, whatever. But then you say, no, he was an ethical pirate. Does that even make sense right. to a lot of people? You know, so if you prefacing it like that, you know, is there like an education piece that you see as almost kind of like a barrier with certain people? Because uh, I get it sometimes. That how do you feel about that? Yeah, I mean, it's funny you actually mentioned it the way that you did. My my business partner has made a similar argument, which I definitely agree with, where he's like, it's almost pejorative. It's almost insulting to say ethical hacker because you wouldn't say, oh, I'm an ethical lawyer or I'm an ethical accountant. It's like, well, I assume that you are that thing. So why do we have to put that word in front of it? And um, I personally don't have much of a beef with it because I think that it does help people differentiate between, oh, I'm here to do good versus I'm here to do bad. And if Hey, we have to have a word in front of it. I'm I'm okay with it, but um, yeah. I mean, the misconceptions they they run rampant. That's certainly one of them. Vocabulary, um, but there's probably a list a dozen long of all the different ways that you know, companies really get it wrong. No doubt, and education on my side is probably the biggest piece too. Because when I speak, you speak on stages all over the place. I speak mm-hmm. on stages all over the place, large crowds. And one of the favoritest talks that I have, you like my word favoritist? That's one of my favoritist words. I do, words. I was going to say. Favoritist <laughs> is one of my favoritist words, yes. You're a word hacker. <laughs> I am, yes. You should hear the words that I make up. I'm not as good as George W., though. I'll say that much. But anyways, there's a little joke. Anyways, coming back to it, the education piece, you know, and there's a slide that is probably one of my favorite slides is just of this family from Sri Lanka. Because as you know, Sri Lanka is, uh, it's, one of the hotbeds, you know, because you talk about Iran, Russia, and everywhere else across the globe as far as the the places where a lot of these hacks come from. But then there's other sort of like minor locations like Sri Lanka. And I post a photo of a family up on the slides. Mm-hmm. 
And I'm saying, what does a hacker look like? Because we talk about, again, that that black hooded figure that's sitting in the background lurking about, right? And I show it up there on the screen and I'm like, take a look at this photo. What do you see? And everyone's like a family. I'm like, these are your hackers right here. These are the ones that are trying to get into your business, that are trying to siphon funds out of your bank account. And why is it them? Do you remember Pablo Escobar, right? He was a family man. He had a wife. He had two kids. He was one of the biggest drug lords that ever existed. Was he an ethical drug lord? No. <laughs> there's, no there's no such thing as an ethical drug lord. But this right. guy, that, that's like the disconnect because they don't see the, the actual people that they're harming. All they see is business opportunity and they're feeding their family and creating a lifestyle for them that they want. So for me, education is the biggest piece pretty much of what I do. And I'm sure your book probably has a lot of that too, but what's one of the main points of education that you just thrive on in your book that you're like, I need to get this out there. People need to grasp at least this one thing. If they forget the rest of the book, please grab onto this one thing. You're, you're spot on. I mean, the whole book, right, is education. And the if there was one thing that I was going to have people grab onto, it's this idea that to defend against attackers, you need to think like them. And to me, I mean, I've been saying that for so long, so many years, so many stages, it's all over the book that to me, it's almost like, well, obviously. But uh, I realized that not everybody actually does think that way. And not everybody even wants to think that way. Right. And thinking like a hacker, that essentially means, let's say what a normal person does, right? A normal person will look at the way that something's supposed to work. Like they'll see a line and they'll be like, oh, I'm supposed to wait in line. So I'll go to the back of the line. That's the way lines work. And what, what, an, uh, what a hacker does is looks at the line and says, I don't want to wait in that line. I want to go to the front of the line. How do I do that? How do I make that work? And that's how people need to think because the thing that leads to systems being broken. And I'm going to generalize here, but this is a very fair and safe generalization to make is bad assumptions. It's bad assumptions are what cause systems to get broken because people will say, and I, I hear this all the time. I'm sure you hear this too, where people will say some version of, I'll, I'll ask a question like, well, what if the attacker did X? And they'll say, oh, no one would think to do X. And I'm like, I literally just did and just asked <laughs> <Yeah>. you about it. <laughs> it just came up in my head right now. Yeah. And it, yeah, I always think, hey, if I thought about it, I'm a smart dude, but I'm probably not the smartest dude on the planet. So there's probably somebody else who had the same idea at some point in time. Right. Right. And that's a that's that's a great example of a really bad assumption, right? Oh, no one will think of that. And it's like, well, people do think of that kind of stuff. Or, oh, no one will ever interact with the system like that. I mean, there's a perfect story of I know this this really famous game hacker who he abused the way that online games treat numbers. And so games typically have these, you can accumulate currency in them. So you can like get a weapons upgrade or something. And the way that those systems work is you would, it essentially says your current balance minus whatever you need to withdraw. And that results in your new balance. So it would be like 500 coins minus 100 coins equals 400 coins. And he looked at that and he said, well, this is assuming that's a positive integer, 500 minus 100. He said, what if I use a negative integer? And so it turns out 500 minus negative 100. And as we all learned in middle school, when you subtract a negative, it's addition. It would now actually increase his account balance 
and he would get whatever the upgrade was. And so that's a great example of where people's assumptions lead to security that gets broken in very unexpected ways. There's always somebody, you know, you're talking about assumptions. What's one of the most unexpected exploits that you've ever seen? Oh, I can tell you a pretty cool story. Uh, I have many, many unexpected story, uh, exploits, but there was one where, so let me, let me frame a scenario for you. Let's, okay, Rick, you're at a beach and you bend over, you pick up a grain of sand and you throw that grain of sand back. And then the next day I go back to that same beach and I pick up any grain of sand. Now, what's the likelihood that it's the same grain of sand that you picked up? It's pretty unlikely, right? Almost impossible. Now, multiply that by every beach on Earth and then multiply that by like a gazillion Earths. And that gives you a sense of what cryptographers would call statistical improbability. It's just, this is what it's like to predict private keys that secure cryptocurrency wallets. You just, you just can't predict them. Or can you? We published security research that actually was able to predict Ethereum, like the keys that protect Ethereum wallets, 732 times. Now, that shouldn't be able to happen once. That's like picking up your same grain of sand once. It happened hundreds of times. And what gets even crazier was then we said, okay, well, of these 732 wallets, what, how much money are we really talking about here? And so because these were based on the blockchain, we could see the transactions, we could see how much was in each wallet. And we were able to determine that every single unit of currency had been liquidated out of those weak wallets and into a central wallet. And so that's crazy that you have this now vulnerability that shouldn't exist that is resulted in this widespread theft. And so then the question was, well, how much are we talking about here? And it turns out that it was about, at the time, $54 million had been stolen across all of these different um, wallets. Wow. Then we wanted to see, well, how fast does a wallet get looted by this, this attacker? <laughs> and so we took a dollar of, of Ethereum, of our own Ethereum, and we put it into one of these wallets. And it was almost instant. I mean, snap your fingers, and that's how fast this money was transferred out. <laughs> and it was, it was crazy, you know, to see, like, an, see this active hacking campaign in progress. This would be like, Rick, you went to go rob a house. And there's another thief robbing the house. And you're like, oh. <laughs> That's already running out the back that. door with the stuff. Yeah. By yeah. the time you go to grab the TV, he's two steps ahead of you. That is crazy. <laughs> that is fun. That's a, it's a lot of fun. I've had some fun stories in my career, too, you know, catching people. Because you, you get on. It's really awesome because you get on the, the really super technical side. And I deal with a lot more of the human aspect. You know, because there's a very much a human element to cybersecurity, as I know that, that you know. You know, because just Absolutely. what we're talking about, it's the psychology of things. You know, if, if you think nobody's ever going to think this way, chances are that there's at least a handful of people that have. And those handful of people also are the ones that probably you don't want to think that way to begin with. But yeah, right. man, to see those things in process is pretty interesting. I mean, I've, I've had my team fight active hacks from China on New Year's Eve before, you know, and they'll call me up and I'm into like my fifth scotch or something like that. It's like, Rick, we've got an active hack going on. Like, cool. You guys got it yeah. because there's no I way that I'm tracing <laughs> this thing right now. Like, we just want to let you know because it's a VIP climate. That's great. I trust you. I'm going to go pour yeah. myself another glass because it's New Year's <laughs> Eve. But no, we always right. take care of it, man. And you know, why does software to get 
why does software get hacked to begin with? You know, what's the motive behind a lot of this? Because we're talking really a lot of this is software, right? Because we're Mm -hmm. not, we haven't gotten into social engineering or anything at this point, but software itself, what's the motive behind going that approach? Well, software is the soft underbelly to the way pretty much every business operates today. And that trend is only going to accelerate as we think about all the different ways that software just runs the economy, runs our businesses. And so if you think about, you made a really good point before. You said you showed, you showed the picture of the Sri Lankan family and you were essentially making the point that hackers, they look just like you and I look like. They have you know, similar attributes and um, they also have hopes and dreams and desires and all that kind of stuff. They're human beings. And on the same vein, attackers, they think the way that we all think in, those, in the regards to um, efficiency, right? They want to be able to say, what can I invest my time and effort and money in that will deliver the best impact and outcome? And attacking systems that commonly have vulnerabilities and are commonly susceptible to many of the same issues, that seems like a smart way to go, right? Especially when the businesses depend on it. And so that's why a lot of attackers are going after software. No doubt. And with these exploits too, because you're talking about that there's certain types of systems, and I've seen it too, that are more vulnerable than others. And it just is the way they're written. It's bad code, or it's just the nature of the use of that software to begin with, how people interact with it. That's what makes it more vulnerable even in and of itself. But when it comes to the way that people get in, you know, or the way that hackers get in, a lot of these things are typically, you know, the one that you ex- express with the cryptocurrency, that's pretty advanced, right? But mm-hmm. most of the hacks that we deal with on a daily ba- basis are not very advanced, you know, because it's things that actually come in through maybe a human being, you know, or they've done a phishing attempt through social engineering, and then they go into the software that way because they've got the keys of the kingdom. You know, I've also described it this way in that if there's a if there's like the silver bullet, right? If somebody finds, because we have a term in our industry called a zero day exploit, right? Mm-hmm. And that means that there's really no patch for it yet because it's the first time it's ever been seen and it's a hole in the software because we're talking about hacking software, whether it's from Microsoft, whether it's from Cisco or whoever, there's a hole in the software that nobody's plugged yet because it just got discovered. That's in a nutshell, layman's terms, what a zero day exploit is. You know, those things are not usually taken on by hackers at mass, from what I see, because when you find those things, there's an economy that has to go into this, including research and development to find these zero day exploits to begin with. So they might spend six. It's a business, right? That Sri Lankan family thing in Pablo Escobar. It's a business and they devote real dollars, sometimes millions of dollars into research and development R&D to find these zero day exploits. So when I tell people, and I've got a question for you on a follow-up here, when I tell people, listen, they're not going to come at you through like this most advanced way, find this zero-day exploit, because when they spend so much money to try to find it to begin with, they're going to save it for like Putin's laptop or something like that, (laughs) you know, because they spent so much in there or do like a multi-billion dollar multinational corporation and that's their target. And they've, re- they've devoted all their research and development dollars to that, just like any other business, any other engineering business. You know, what's one thing that you tell everyone to kind of like bust these myths? And how do you tell them to stay safe with that? 
You're asking how do I tell individual consumers or what do I say to businesses? Because you work mostly B2B, right? Business to business. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. What would you tell businesses? You know, what, what's the, the, the first frontline defense that you would have to say this is what you need to do? Because it's not somebody's mm-hmm. not coming after you with a zero day exploit. You know, because they're going after a big multinational corporation with something like that. You know, the conversation I had with their United States government was a different story because they will be hacked with a zero day exploit. Right. You know, but B2B is a different story. Well, I, I'd actually argue a different position on that. That um, So zero days are, as you, you described them correctly, and but they aren't necessarily only zero days in these you know, commercially available off-the-shelf products that are then used in some, you know, by a nation state against some other nation state. A zero day by definition really is um, any vulnerability that's exploitable right now where the defender has zero days to resolve it. And so that exists in everyone's software, right? They exist in everyone's software. So the question is, have you found it yet? And so the advice that there's not a universal piece of advice that's like, oh, make sure you have this type of technology installed or whatever. But the first piece of advice that we always have for people is to make sure that you even understand the battle you're in. And that's where you need to establish a threat model. And like the way you described it, Rick, they're inherent in what you said is there's so many grains of truth, which is that the way a nation state should think is going to be a little different than the way that say a private company should think is going to be very different the way a mom and pop store is going to think. And the reason that you want to think differently in those different contexts is you have different things to protect. Different attackers are going to want to come for different reasons. You have different attack surfaces, which are essentially where an attack might happen. And that's what companies need to do first is they need to really understand what battle are we even in so that we know how to fight it. That's a perfect point, man. Cause you're right. The mom and pops, right? Cause there's a client of ours. that's a franchise owner that has six Buffalo wild wings. Right. And for that, there was a point to where I was working with the FBI because supposedly one of the locations was leaking credit card numbers to the dark web. You know, there's 11 credit card numbers. PCI fines up to $600,000 a piece. He was looking at potentially $6.6 million in fines. And he only mm-hmm. owns six restaurants, it's- right? That's like the revenue combined yearly on a yearly basis for half of his yeah. restaurants is what his fines were going to be. But that's a different thing. So the China scenario that I was talking about is you know, still with another client that has 14 international patents. You know, so the, the franchise mm-hmm. person, you know, that's where those 14 international patents are worth over a billion dollars. It's a different type of threat model, and it's a different motive that that bad actor, because that's a, or that threat actor, as we call it in our industry, is mm-hmm. after because it's just different motivation behind the scenes, you know, versus when we're talking to a nation state. I love how you grasp this and just put it in such eloquent terms, my man, because it's amazing. <laughs> I'm, I'm really even more excited for your book now. Because who, who, oh, who's yeah. the audience for your book? Is it consumers? Is it B two B? Is it other individuals in our in our space? Yeah, the primary audience is essentially chief technology officers or or whoever it is that's responsible for building software and it, that it has to be secure. And so then by extension, you know, that's more than just CTOs. Obviously, there's there are security people who play into that. Um, I wrote it with developers, software developers in mind as well. But it's not really for the individual consumer, like the person who owns a a retail store 
they would get some really good insights out of this, but they'd be like, oh, I can't do anything with this because I didn't build the software that runs my point of sale or whatever. It's for the person who's you know, building software, commercializing it and needs to keep it secure. And those are the people that I see struggle all the time where they're like, look, I got this customer breathing down my neck saying, hey, prove to me security. I got the board breathing down my neck who's like, hey, keep costs low. And I got the CEO breathing down my neck who's like, make sure you don't miss the delivery uh, milestones. And I got developers breathing up my neck like, hey, stop making my life so terrible. And I want to help solve all those problems because security really is, is a, as much a business challenge as it is a technical challenge. And so the story arc of this whole book, which by the way, is 100% filled with stories from security research and um, the consulting projects we've done with our customers, real world examples oh, I love that. that help take people through start to finish exactly what you need to do exactly how you need to work with in-house resources as well as external security partners, exactly how to measure success. And explicitly, I identify all of the ways that people think about things wrong, but don't realize it and say, look, you think it's X, it should be Y. And here's what you need to do in order to do this correctly. That's awesome. You talked about the business challenges because of the hierarchy within corporations and software development companies, which are real. They're very, very yeah. real because there are financial concerns from certain groups of individuals, like you mentioned. And then there's also technical challenges that have to be met, which usually takes money to meet those technical challenges. <laughs> right. you know, but you, you mentioned them as business challenges. But is there a way or how can software development companies utilize security as a competitive advantage? Oh, you're reading my mind, my man. That, <laughs> I try. That's chapter 10. That's the ultimate payoff of the book. <laughs> I, I make the case in this book, and I make this case with everyone that I talk to, by the way, that most people see security as a tax on the business, right? And no one likes paying taxes, right? Everyone wants to reduce the amount of taxes that they pay. And they see this as this thing where they're like, oh, I got to do it because I got to do it. But whatever, I'm not that excited about it. And I say, that's the wrong way to think about it. It's actually, in the, I use the words that you said. Uh, it's actually a competitive advantage because now this is specifically if you are building software to commercialize it, you're building it to sell licenses to someone else. It's different if it's something you're building internal at your organization, but there's a case for that as well. But so if you are building software that you then sell licenses to someone else, the advantage is that your customers they all demand security of the products they use. They want your product to be secure. So that's the opportunity, right? That the, the marketplace is asking for it. But where the mar opportunity becomes enormous is by the fact that, number one, most companies don't do a good job of securing their technology. And number two, even the ones who do, do a terrible job of proving it. I mean, Rick, you've heard all day long people say, ridiculous claims like, oh, this is, you know, bank level encryption, military grade security. Um, we take security seriously. Like all this stuff that is, is really not Dude, actually it's a security marketing claim. lingo. That's all it is. Yeah. It's insane. It's like the car so, salesman saying this thing's got 400 or not even 400 horsepower, but this thing's really fast. I can't. Yeah. Well, I'll give you a good car uh, example. So it's like these security claims are like someone saying, so you drive up in your, you know, lower end Hyundai or whatever. And you're like, check out this bad boy. This has Rolls Royce grade tire pressure. And you're like, wait, what? <laughs> but that's what you're saying. You're saying military grade PSI, Christian. So, baby. 
Yeah. <laughs> this is the exact same tire pressure as a Rolls. It's like, I don't care. That has no bearing on whether this is a good car or not. This frame made of steel. Yeah, yeah exactly. That stuff happens all. I mean, we're laughing, right? Because it sounds ridiculous. But that's it. But that's yeah. exactly that's what people exactly are doing. It. Yep, that's fantastic, man. Competitive advantage is huge. So, what's a standard, though? You know, as a follow up question for this, you know, because instead of saying these things like military grade encryption or we're as secure as your bank is, you know, and then people immediately can go. I think they're making mistakes because I've done interviews before of we call them end users, right? Of mm -hmm. employees at client corporations. I mean, just like this, asking interviews. And every time I asked, hey, have you gotten hacked? It was never somebody got into my computer. It was never somebody got my Facebook account. It was always, this is general consumer saying, oh man, my debit card got stolen or my credit card got stolen. Everyone mm -hmm. always goes to the financial scenario. I never got a mm -hmm. different answer when I was doing these interviews. So when you have this competitive advantage and you're trying to say, hey, we're like bank grade security or whatever it is, don't say that because people immediately go to, well, I got my credit card number stolen. So if you're saying you're as secure as the bank that got my credit card information stolen, that's not very good. So what should people say? Is there a standard out there that we can lean on from businesses and say, this is who I want to do business with? So I don't know if I'd necessarily use the word standard for this, but what you're getting at is like, what, what should people say? And I am driving this change, which is that we should talk about it like human beings talk about stuff, right? Fundamentally, security is about trust. And as human beings, how do we, how do we determine whether we trust somebody else, right? It's pretty simple, right? We want that person to just tell us how it is, and then tell us how we can verify what it is that they're saying is true. That's how you deal with security marketing. It's as simple as that. Tell them what you did. Tell them how to verify it. It's just so straightforward. We don't need to complicate it with all this jargon and buzzwords and people are using like, oh, we use the best machine learning to encrypt the algorithm behind the artificial. It's like, shut up. Just tell them what you did and tell them how to verify it. And then they'll trust you assuming that you did those things. AES 2048. That's what we use. Yeah, yeah, yeah baby. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. If that's even a thing, I don't even know. <laughs> <laughs> Almost 256. Yeah, I know. Course. I was like going beyond 256 to be like, hey, we've gone above and beyond 256 yeah. now. Yeah. Only the nerds <laughs> listening to this part of the show are going to get it, but <laughs> that's okay. That is okay, yep. man. You're right because this our industry needs to be more human. And what happens, because it, when I was in the White House and I was saying, hey, you know, the Department of Homeland Security, DHS, only pegs 18% of us that actually really know what's going on. And I think the differentiator, because, dude, that means four out of five of us don't know Jack, right? And that's pretty sad. That's, that's generous. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, but one of the differences that I see in the threshold and the dividing line is literally the way we communicate, you know, because there can be for some really smart people out there that know what's going on, but they're never going to get to the right solution for the clients or the company because they just don't speak human. They go into all mm. the tech stuff. And this is something I encourage all the time because you and I can have a normal conversation. You and I could probably go out and have a glass of scotch later, right? And talk about everything Please. else in the world other than cybersecurity. Because we mm -hmm. can have that conversation. We get down to a human level. But there, there's this thing. Think about like the Comcast rep or the cable guy, right? And they come into your house or whatever. And this is the misconception about a lot of people in our industry. But it's sad because it's a stereotype that's kind of true. 
Because a lot of the really smart people think about the psychology, and this is like the the non-cyber talk, the really human talk, right? They might have been bullied when they were in school. I was a little bit, right? And then they gravitated towards something because they're really smart, and now they're thinking, oh, here's my chance. I know more than all these other people, and they should pay me all this money, and I'm going to show them why they should pay me all this money. This is bringing it full circle back to the beginning of the show when we said that we're both badasses. Right. Well, I said it. You agreed. Right. But we can say that in a way that's still very, very human rather than talking down to people. It's lifting us up and saying, you know what? I know what I know. And I also know how to lift you up. And this is where you can trust me using the phraseology that you're saying right there. We're literally teaching people how to sell this now. Have the human conversation. That's the straight truth. Don't be the Comcast guy, the cable guy and talk down to people like they should know. Because the point is they invited you into their space because they don't know. They're Mm -hmm. hopefully looking for somebody to trust in place of themselves because they don't know to educate them. And that's, dude, I'm, I'm so excited because your book, I hope, goes into maybe even some of that right there because it is the human conversation that we're having in cybersecurity these days. It has to be that. That's the only way this is going to shift around and we're actually going to defeat, in my opinion, because I'm a patriot, defeat other nation states when we start looking at the human aspect of things. Oh, that's that's a real challenge, no doubt. Yeah, how do we how do we deal with other nation states? But yeah, you're, what you're addressing right now, the the human element to this and how, look, we're human beings waging this battle right now against faceless enemies. And, you know, one of the things that, that really strikes me and, and strikes a human nerve in me is that you see all these really intelligent and passionate and capable security professionals working in careers where success is often simply measured as we didn't get hacked yet. It's very thankless, right? And so what I always want to do, I mean, I empathize with that. That's, that sucks. And so I always, whenever I see other security professors, I always try to go out of my way to be like, hey, what you're doing matters. And you probably know that. So you don't need to hear it from me. But if you don't know that, you know, thank you. Let me, let me be the one to, to say thank you. And um, that's, that's, it's such a powerful thing, I think, in the community for us to all realize that we are all in this crazy battle and we're human beings and we should talk authentically to the customers because they're also looking for human beings to help them solve their own human challenges. Not a robot, an automaton walking through the door, yeah. right? With the, with yeah. this chip on its shoulder. I'm with you, my man. Dude, the book is hackable. It's out today, today. That's fantastic. Where can we yes. buy it? Yeah. So go to, it'll be available obviously on Amazon. So you can, you can grab it there, but if uh, you have trouble finding it, you can just go to my book website. It's just hackablebook.com. We'll link you right to where the page is. And uh, for this week only, the ebook is on a crazy, crazy sale that my publisher really advocated that we do just for the next few days. It's just going to be 99 cents. You know, normally it's like a normal book price, like 25 bucks or whatever. But uh, yeah, we're trying to get it into as many hands as we can. And if we can remove the price barrier, then go get it today or in the next couple of days. Dude, that's killer. Thank you for bringing knowledge to the people that need it, my man. And thanks for being on today. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. So, yeah. What's shaking? Thank you for joining me on the All In Podcast. Click the subscribe button and smash that bell for notifications. Text me, 312-535-8520. Follow me on social media, at Mr. Rick Jordan. See you next episode. I am Rick Jordan, and I approve this message.